Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, this is Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rob Senska, General Counsel and Director with LW Consulting, a full-service consulting company providing compliance, strategic, and audit services to healthcare providers. Rob has nearly 20 years of legal compliance and regulatory experience in the healthcare field, focusing on both the payer and provider side. Rob has held senior-level hospital legal and compliance leadership roles at both community hospitals and major national health systems. He has also worked at top New Jersey and New York law firms in their health and hospital practice groups. Rob holds a JD from Brooklyn Law School, an MBA from Union University, a Bachelor of Science from Union College, and a Lean Six Sigma Black Belt certification from Villanova University. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. So today, Rob, we're going to talk about proper billing for a level four new patient. Why don't you tell us what a level four new patient office visit is? Sure, Mike. Um, So in responding to this question, I think it's best to sort of break down such a visit into its component elements. So first, let's start with the office visit. This is really the meeting between the patient and provider. And by way of brief background, billing criteria for an office visit falls under the Evaluation and Management, or E&M, section of the current procedural terminology, aka CPT manual, which is put out by the American Medical Association and adopted by CMS. Really what this is is a sequence of five numbers that hold the monetary value associated with or describing the medical and surgical procedures, the office visit, the hospital encounters, the lab tests of the imaging procedures, etc. Um, it is essentially the way that providers get paid for the services performed. So that's sort of the, the office visit component of this. Now, with respect to the new, new patient component, this is defined by CMS as a patient who has not had a face-to-face professional service with a provider or a patient who has not been seen within the last three years by the provider. If they don't meet one of these elements of this definition, then the patient falls into the category of what's considered a quote-unquote established patient. Now, the final piece of, of your question, Mike, is really regarding the leveling, which is probably the most tricky piece of this. Um, So in general, on very simple terms, there are certain quote-unquote levels for an evaluation and management or E&M visit. And those levels are one through five. And these levels, that's sort of the the abbreviation for which corresponds to CPT codes 99211, 99212, 99213-14-15. Each of these levels comes with an increasing level of complexity of care and services, thus warranting a higher level of reimbursement. Now, in most cases, Mike, um, the levels are generally fall within the middle of the bell curve, if you will, being levels two, three, and four. In fact, uh, recent 2017 MGMA Medicare data indicates that for both internal medicine and family medicine physicians, they build approximately 90% of all E&M billings at a level three or four. So there's clearly a really spiked bell curve in terms of the billing for these services. 
um, with, with respect to um, the E&M levels. So that's sort of uh, a summary of what a new patient, uh, you know, office visit level four would be um, in general terms, Mike. And Rob, what are the components required to meet this level of care? No, it's a great question. And, and since a, a, new, a level four new patient visit, as I indicated, has a higher level of reimbursement associated with it, meaning there's more services being provided than at the lower levels. Therefore, there are certain standards that must be met in terms of the services documented uh, and, and the billing. Um, and for a level four, Mike, it requires three out of three very specified components in order to bill it appropriately. So what are these components? Um, what must be done is a, is a comprehensive history of the patient, a comprehensive exam, and moderate level medical decision making. Now, each one of these components uh, is a loaded term. So for new patients, really depending on the reason for the visit, it is often feasible to appropriately bill for a level four based on these elements because in general for a new patient, there's also a new problem. So it tends to be a little more complex and a little more work for the attending physician. Um, th thus making it reasonable and substantiating the need for a level four or the billing of a level, level four. Uh, so let's get into a little bit about these three components. Um, and I'll give some summary information for our audience. So with respect to the comprehensive history, the following elements are needed in order to appropriately bill this level four. Number one, achieve complaint. Number two, Four history of present illness elements, or what are called HPI elements. And then three, a complete past family social history and a complete 10-point review of systems or ROS. So those are the elements that are needed for the comprehensive history. Now let's get into the comprehensive exam for a moment. In order to meet sort of this standard, you need to have eight organ systems must be examined. And this is based on the 1997 examination guidelines which are promulgated and set forth by CMS. Now auditors and coders should be careful not to get confused by counting both organ systems and body areas. Other levels such as a two or three allow you to mix and count organ systems and body areas. A comprehensive exam however is only met by reviewing a minimum again of eight organ systems. Now the last part of this which I think is the most tricky and that, and that is with respect to the medical decision-making, which tends to be a bit more subjective and a bit more gray um, and often an area of debate with, with billing this level of service. So medical decision-making in general is where the physician comes to a decision and shows his or her thought process behind the level of care. And there are three elements that make up MDM or medical decision-making. The nature and number of the clinical problems is one the amount and complexity of the data reviewed by the physician, and number three, the risk of morbidity and mortality to the patient. So those are the elements that are part of the, mo the medical decision-making and whether it's going to be moderate or not. Now, there is more to this, Mike, which is probably a little more advanced for the purposes of, of this discussion, but in general, there is a summary. There are accepted point system whereby coders and auditors can ascribe a score to these three MDM elements. You need a certain number of total tally points to meet the threshold for moderate medical deci decision making and thus satisfying 
the level four visit billing. This is where you get the higher reimbursement, and these are sort of the steps you need to take in terms of being pragmatic about documenting the coding and the billing for this level of service. There are tools, Mike, that help auditors and coders tally these numbers to ensure that they have the right elements to meet this level. And our company does a lot of educating um, in this space, especially in the, on the MDM piece. And provider education is key, making sure that they know what components are necessary to build this level uh, visit, or any level visit for that matter. Um, it's important for the auditors and the coders to follow the guidelines and to use some common sense as to what is being performed and documented. What steps should medical practices take to ensure they are properly coding and billing for the correct services? No, great, great question. Um, I think one thing that comes to mind immediately is having experienced coders who know the guidelines um, do the work for you and really keeping the knowledge current. You know, things change constantly. We know this as an audit company. We do a lot of overseeing and auditing across the, the provider spectrum. Um, and we keep our auditors up to date on LCDs and NCDs constantly and any other regulatory changes that impact billing and coding. And it's really important for medical practices, hospitals, um, irrespective of, of the provider type, really, to make sure that the people who are doing their coding and billing are up to speed on all these LCDs and NCDs that apply to them. Um, this is key. Um, other keys that are, are kind of common sense in this industry but seem to get lost in translation sometimes, documenting accurately and legibly. Uh, there's a saying in the industry that if it isn't documented or wasn't documented, it wasn't performed, it wasn't done. I, and if you can't read it, then it wasn't documented. So that's probably the – if I had one take-home message, make sure you can read it, make sure it's documented, then you have the right to get paid for it. Um, an auditor, insurance company, or CMS does not know how sick a patient is unless it's documented. So if you don't have it in the record, it wasn't performed. And then I think another good tidbit here is to have a gr really good quality assurance program, which should really be part of a robust compliance program. And having the ongoing audit and education process in place um, really makes, you know, you put a lot of onus on the process rather than the people. And having that kind of culture will keep you out of trouble. Talk to me about the implications of improper coding and billing errors. Right. Speak of trouble. So um, there's many impacts of improper coding and billing errors. Um, this can impact a provider on so many levels. Uh, I'll give you some of my thoughts as to what comes to mind immediately. Uh, rejected claims from third-party payers. This is going to slow down your incoming cash and really impact your revenue and revenue cycle for the provider. So the entire revenue cycle can be slowed by having multiple errors uh, in your billing and coding. Even if you supplement the record subsequent to um, you know, a question by a third-party payer, or even if you overturn or appeal the challenges in your challenges to the third-party payer, it still slows down your cash, meaning you're not getting paid as quickly for the work you actually did simply because you did not have the billing and the coding done accurately in the first instance. If you get that out the door accurately, you're going to get paid faster. Uh, in addition to that, uh, insurance audits and slowing down the cash flow with investigations and inquiries also is time-consuming to respond to and expensive. There's a huge administrative burden that goes along with that. 
Now let's up the ante for a second. And if it's not just a you know sort of a normal course, we'll call it um, investigation or questioning by a third party payer. It could be that your billing and coding errors are leading to a fraud investigation. And this is the level that can really sink a provider. If the OIG or the DOJ, Department of Justice, are investigating you, um, you know, you have a huge administrative burden. You have reputational risk that goes along with that in the media. And potentially, not just recoupment, but potentially at that level, you're talking about possibly being kicked out of the Medicaid and Medicare um, reimbursement system and even having criminal or civil sanctions and penalties uh, uh, you know, set against your company and individually now with recent um, happenings like the Yates memo at the DOJ level, individual executives um, can be and will be found and held liable and guilty for potential fraud errors stemming again from improper coding and billing. I personally, I personally have been internal as both chief compliance officer and general counsel of an acute care facility that had a HIPAA subpoena for civil and criminal allegations. And ultimately, we were found uh, exonerated, but it cost us millions of dollars to defend and to prove essentially our innocence. And a lot of that stemmed initially from improper billing and coding, or really billing and coding errors, as I would couch it. So the legal action, I think, is, is, is the biggest you know, scare. Um, but again, all of this is distraction. It's bad press, it's slowed cash flow, and it's potentially huge impacts uh, on your business. So if you're, if you're not doing your billing and coding properly and accurately and making sure your documentation is really pristine, it becomes a very scary world for a provider. But Rob, are there differences between Medicare and non-Medicare patients when it comes to billing for level four new patients? You know, not really, Mike. I mean, for the E&M guidelines, they're essentially used with every third-party payer. They're put out by, by CMS. However, it's still very important um, to check each Medicare contractor or MAC based on the jurisdiction. There are sometimes nuanced local coverage determinations and sometimes national coverage determinations that you need to check um, each time you're doing a project. Um, again, for our auditors, we're always double-checking the LCDs and the NCDs and any other regulatory updates before we engage on a project. So that's key. In general, they're the same, though, Mike. Um, also, it's important to note that private insurers may have their own nuances in their contracts or policies that you need to check on uh, you know, quite frequently to make sure there's nothing you're missing with respect to these third-party payers. And what other controls can practices implement to prevent billing mistakes? Yeah, I think some of the things that, that should be done as a matter of practice and, and aren't new concepts in the compliance world nowadays, um, but you have to have internal and external audits of risk areas. Basically, any place where you've seen reimbursement issues or other operational or potential fraud issues, basically signs of smoke. Always follow the, uh, follow the smoke. Um, now, the OIG has really separated out monitoring and auditing. And monitoring, as the OIG states, is really the day-to-day -day, uh, oversight of your compliance program and overseeing the day-to-day -day operations, making sure if there's any red flags you're investigating, and carrying out any remedial action. And then there's the auditing component, 
which really is internal and external. Now, the OIG uh, really recommends that providers, healthcare providers, irrespective of the type of provider, have external third parties come in and from time to time do objective, independent audits and assessments. So that's really per the regulatory guidance. And I think you need to have both components, the day-to-day monitoring and also the ongoing auditing. So those are two pieces that are really part of uh, an, uh, an effective compliance program as set forth by the OIG. And then another key component, Mike, is the constant education of providers, and not just providers, but the constant education and training of billing staff, revenue cycle staff, and other operational units. Uh, At the end of the day, you need to make sure all the people have the right knowledge to get the documentation done right and the bills out the door correctly. And again, our company does a ton of educating in this space um, because things do change. It's not a static area. So again, uh, you know, being, being wise, you need to keep people educated and you need to keep on top of all the changes. And then I think overarching all of this and in, in, in sort of starting at the top is having an effective compliance program that is really part of the culture. And that compliance program needs to be constantly attended to by the compliance department, the compliance officer, and really the other company leaders. What impact, if any, does this have on a practice's revenue cycle? So once again, I think if you're not billing appropriately, it can affect, it can affect your practice in, in many ways. Um, if you're overcoding, this can result in being flagged by the government or a third-party payer for audit or inquiry or investigation. Based on the results, you might have to pay money back, or you could have a bigger issue like we talked about a little while ago with fraud or, or a DOJ or OIG investigation. And then also, I think with respect to undercoding, what you see is what you see are practices or hospitals or providers not billing for everything that they do. Now, sometimes there's a fear of you know the things I've talked about, the fraud or the overbilling, but it's really important that every patient encounter be coded accurately for the work that was done. Now, I know for a fact in talking with my colleagues across the nation, the compliance officers often cringe at consulting words like revenue optimization or revenue enhancement, but that really shouldn't be the case because all we're really talking about is getting paid for bona fide, legitimate, medically necessary services that were actually performed. And to get paid for what you did is not illegal in any way. It's just making sure you have the documentation done properly. So a lot, again, a lot starts with making sure you have a good compliance plan in place, making sure that you have the right people with the right knowledge, doing the work, and continuously educating your staff on these things. We hear a lot about uh, medical necessity. Where does this fit in when billing for level four new patient visits? Well, I think the medical necessity piece fits in not only for um, level four new patients, but pretty much across the board for any levels. Uh, medical necessity is a key uh, element for any service build. And it really is a legal doctrine that relates to the activities which are justified as quote-unquote reasonable, necessary, and or appropriate care based on evidence-based clinical standards of care. So the, the base question really is, does your documentation support the medical need for the services or procedures that you are rendering? That's the key question here. Um, so the documentation may include the clinical evaluations, 
physician evaluations, consultations, progress notes, physician office records, hospital records, nursing home records, home health agency records, records from other healthcare professionals, and any test reports, just to name a few. Uh, it's really important, again, for companies, providers across the spectrum to ensure they have quality assurance and audit compliance programs that strive to and really double check to ensure all services rendered and billed are actually medically necessary. It can be elusive and it's often litigated and discussed in the literature, but very basically, it means the services were warranted and needed by the patient. Rob, thanks for helping us understand more about level four new patients. If someone would like to learn more about LW Consulting and what you do, where can they go? Uh, they can reach us at lw-consult.com, Mike. Thank you. Great, Rob. Thanks again. If you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss on the Hospital Finance Podcast, or if you'd like to be a guest, drop us a line at update at Bessler.com. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.